invite you at this time to turn in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians 1, 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 18 through 31. You'll find it on page 1,772 in your pupil. Before we read the word this evening, let us pray that the Lord would bless this word as we meditate upon it this evening. Let us pray. Almighty God and Heavenly Father, as we come before your throne of grace once again, we ask that we may hear this word, that you would shape our hearts, that you would change our minds, bend our wills towards you, that we may hear what you would have us hear, that we should do what you would have us do. We may live your word as salt and light in this world when we go from this place. This we ask in the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. 1 Corinthians 1, starting at verse 18. Hear now the word of the Lord. For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written... I will destroy the wisdom of the wise. The intelligence of the intelligent I will frustrate. Where is the wise man? Where is the scholar? Where is the philosopher of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not know him. God was pleased through the foolishness of what was preached to save those who believe. Jews demand miraculous signs and Greeks look for wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and foolishness to Gentiles. But to those whom God has called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than man's wisdom, and the weakness of God is stronger than man's strength. Brothers, think of what you were when you were called. Not many of you were wise by human standards. Not many were influential. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. He chose the lowly things of this world and to despise things and the things that are not to nullify the things that are. So that no one may boast before him. It is because of him that you are in Christ Jesus who has become for us wisdom from God. That is our righteousness, holiness, and redemption. Therefore, as it is written, let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. Thus far the reading of God's word. People of God, children called according to his grace. I want to ask a simple question this evening. What is wisdom? What is wisdom? Now, yes, that is a very loaded question, isn't it? I had a professor of mine once tell me, intelligence is the building up of knowledge, but wisdom is taking that intelligence and knowing what you're supposed to do with it. And I said, okay, that's, that's an interesting perspective on things. Now, we have many people in this world that have what we would consider to be wise, right? And we hold in esteem wise men. In fact, looking ahead into the gospel or into the Christmas story, 
We have shepherds, we have angels, we have Mary and Joseph, we have animals. Oh yeah, and then there's these three wise men that came from the east. Hmm, wise guys. But the question is, what truly is wisdom? Were they wise in their own eyes? Were they wise in the eyes of others? What really is wisdom? And in our passage here tonight, the word wisdom is mentioned over and over and over again. You can hardly get away from it. But you see, in our passage, Paul puts it actually pretty simply. God gives eyes to see what the wisdom of God truly is, which namely is Christ. So that our only response can possibly be thankful humility before the face of God. And he does this in three ways. He starts off by saying, here is the proper perspective. And then he talks about the origin of that and says, here is the proper power that allows that wisdom to actually take hold. And that wisdom then should give a proper praise. So we're going to discuss the proper perspective, the proper power, and the proper praise this evening. I tried to go with the alliteration. Let's hope it works out. So first of all, the proper perspective. Paul, in verse 18, instantly sets up a dividing line. Christ says, I've come to bring a sword, and Paul shows that sword in its double-edged glory right here. He sets two people, two sets of people. The message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. I want, you, I want to notice two things about these, each, of this, each of these groups. The first is that they have a separate identity and that that identity gives them a perspective on what the gospel, the cross is. The first thing is their identity. Their identity is defined as those who are perishing or those who are being saved. Now, it's interesting that Paul uses those who are perishing. And the word here, perishing, is coming to nothing. The word in the Greek here is they are literally frittering away. And they are being identified not as what they've fallen, not as what they've done, but as their status as those who are merely just frittering away to nothing. And in their frittering away to nothing, they take the gospel of Christ and they see it as nothing but foolishness. The other group that Paul talks about here is those of us who are being saved. Notice how they are not defined by good works. They're not defined by those who are nice or those who are neat or those who are well kept. No, they are defined by those who are being saved. Notice also the two things here. Those who are perishing are actively doing it. They are perishing. But the word here in Greek is actually a little aorist, which is a nice fancy term for us grammar nerds that say it's an action that's already been completed. It's something that's already done. You are being saved. Something is being done to you, and it's already been accomplished. So when Paul talks about the two people here, you have the people who are currently frittering, and the people that are currently established already. They are being made established in Christ. And to one, the gospel, 
is merely foolishness. This is the second thing, their perspective on the gospel. To one, their perspective is merely that the gospel, the the gospel of the cross, is worthless. To those who are perishing, there there is no peace. There's no strength. There's no mercy. There's no grace in the gospel of the cross. They see it as nothing but foolish waste of time. But to those who are being saved, it is the power of God. Now, why would Paul put it that way? The power of God. Well, you see here that our identity is shaping their view of the gospel of the cross. The truth of the life or death that is within them is the perspective that they see the truth of the gospel in. To the one being saved, the sacrifice of the cross is the greatest act of love that God could have possibly demonstrated to his people. There is nothing more in this world that is more heavy, that bears more weight, that gives more pause or should give more pause to a person that is being saved than the price that has been paid to save them. But to the one perishing, the sacrifice on the cross is the ultimate conviction of their rejection of the power of God. That the gracious gift of Christ on the cross, that thing which is the extension of God's mercy and interjection of God himself into this world, Emmanuel, hanging on a cross, bearing the sins, taking upon himself the curse of those who hang on a tree. And they reject it outright. It's foolish to believe in that. What are you talking about? Paul here quotes Isaiah 29, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the intelligence of the intelligent I will frustrate. He does show to demonstrate to exemplarize that this is nothing new. Isaiah 29 is a chapter from Isaiah that quite simply could be called the rejection of religiosity. It is a curse upon the people of Israel. Isaiah 29 talks about how those who come the temple day after day offer their sacrifices, the bleeding of goats and the rams that are offered as burnt offerings, as sin offerings upon the altar. And they come in and day in and day out, but the hearts of the people of God are not turned. They have an outward demonstration, but their spiritual reality is that they are nothing but corpses walking. And so no matter what they do, They have not embraced God that has shown them it's not what you do. It's what God, it's what God has done for us. Paul continues in verse 20 
and he shifts to kind of work out these differing perspectives between those who have been saved or are being saved and those who are perishing. In verse 20, he kind of breaks it down and says, okay, where's the wise man? Where's the scholar? The word here literally in Greek is, who is the scribe? If we can think of those who would question Jesus regularly, they were the teachers, they were the scribes, and they were the Pharisees. Well, here we have the wise men, the scholar, and the philosopher of this age. It's a little bit more broad, but it's about the same thing. And he says, has not God foolish the wisdom of the world? You see, this perspective upon the gospel can only come from the powers that come from behind those perspectives. You see, Paul, when he shifts in verse 20, he questions the basis for the knowledge of these two groups. He instantly goes to the heart of the matter. And he says, those who are perishing, the reason why it's wisdom is because God, in his wisdom, has defeated their wisdom. I know it might be a little bit of a double-meaning, kind of weird way of phrasing things for us, but basically God is showing to them, you think you're wise, let me show you what true wisdom is. You think you're powerful, let me show you what true power is. And God uses two groups here to kind of exemplify what he's talking about. He uses the two groups that commonly came up against him. He uses the Jews and he uses the Greeks. In verse 22, he states that Jews demand miraculous signs and Greeks look for wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified. The Jews looked for signs, and this was a common thing for the Jewish people. The Jewish people would always point back, right? They would have their Hebrew schools, they would study the Torah. And what does the Torah tell them? Well, Moses in Exodus 4 said, I'm going to your people. He's talking to the burnt at this point. He says, I'm going to your people. What if they don't believe me? God says, I will give you a sign. Throw your staff on the ground. It becomes a snake. Pick it back up. It becomes a stick. Put your hand into your robe. Pull it back out. It becomes leprous. Put it back in. Pull it back out. It's fine. Gideon in Judges 6. Well, Lord, I don't know if you've really called me so Make the dew on the ground, but leave the fleece dry. Okay, Lord, I know you kind of did that one, but I just want to make sure. So this time, make the fleece wet, but I want the ground to be dry. It's a common Sunday school story, isn't it? Something we're a little more familiar with. How about this one? King Hezekiah, probably the sign with the greatest impact. King Hezekiah is on his deathbed, deathly ill sick to the point where he can't even get out of bed and he's visited by the prophet Elisha. And he is told, rise, you will get well. You will defeat the enemies that come before you and you will rule for another few years. And Hezekiah goes, how do I know this is true? The prophet comes back and says, the Lord will give you a sign. Do you want the sun to go forward ten paces or back ten paces? Hezekiah says, it's an easy thing for the Lord to push the sun forward ten paces. I want it to go backwards ten paces. Lo and behold, the sun moves in the sky. You can find that story in 2 Kings chapter 20. 
you see, the Jews would commonly look for something in the material world that is unexplainable. A stick becoming a snake. A hand instantly getting sick and then becoming whole again. Something that defies the laws of physics, like dew only nestling on the ground and not on a piece of fleece, or vice versa. Or even stranger still, the astronomical cycles that go throughout the universe all of a sudden stop and go back. Okay, Lord, you want me to do something? Show me your power and I will believe. The Greeks, however, had a completely different perspective on the world. The physical was evil, was created by a demagogue. And how dare the physical have anything to do with the spiritual? They were enlightened by people such as Plato and Aristotle. Plato, who in his famous work of the cave, said that we are merely people shackled into the world and that what we see are merely shadows cast up on the wall of the cave, and that the light, the truth, was somewhere out there beyond our mere perception. Aristotle took it even a step further by saying, ah, but there is a hierarchy to all of this. There is a pure understanding of that which is spiritual. We have the God, and then we have the angels that come from that, and then there is this line of separation, this line of demarcation between the spiritual and the physical. And so you have demons and other things that are, that are more powerful than anything else, and then you have humans, and then you have animals, and then you have plants, and then you have everything else, the rot and whatever else that happens. And so all of the world is on this scale, all of existence is on this scale, but the spiritual will always hold more power than the physical. In the time of Paul, we have the Epicureans and the Greeks, or the Stoics. They would go around and they would preach and teach these philosophies. They would, especially the Stoics, the Stoics were widely known as people who today we would just see as absolutely crazy. The Stoics who, we we even use the word, oh, you're being Stoic about this, as having no emotion. The Stoics were worse than that, actually. The Stoics would say, this world doesn't matter, and because this world doesn't matter, that which happens, happens. It's all about what I can't see. It's all about this astral projection beyond. And so, if I eat, I eat. If I don't, I don't. If I go to the bathroom on the road, who cares? You totally give in to base desires. Because the physical doesn't matter. It's the spiritual that happens. It's the spiritual that is the truth. In fact, if you want to see some of the modern day descendants of this, talk to Christian science people. I had a neighbor that was Christian science. They can't stand having the name Jesus Christ be said next to each other because Christ was the salvation, the spiritual, the ethereal. Jesus was just the man he inhabited. It's a really, really weird way of looking at things. Your broken leg can be healed through the power of prayer. Just don't go to the doctor. Because again, the material has no value. The material has no no proper weight to it. It's all about the spiritual. And what Paul says here in our text is that 
You think you're wise. You think you know what the world is going to be like. You think you know how the world operates. And so you say, okay, God, I want you to prove to me that you are real. I want you to prove to me that you have the power to change this situation. If you're Jewish, you're looking for this material sign that God is interjecting into the world. If you're Greek, it's impossible for God to interject in this world, but through logic and rhetoric and means, then I shall know. Verse 21, Paul says, the wisdom through the wisdom, for since in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not know him, God was pleased through the foolishness of what was preached to save those who believe. You think it's foolish, well I'm going to use this foolishness to save those who you deem foolish. Notice in verse 24 that this is not something that is defined by nationality, by race, or by any other boundary. To those whom God has called both Jews and Greeks, it's not your heritage, it's not your intelligence, it's not the power that you have, it's not your status in the world. God calls you anyway because you don't lean on where you came from. You are not Simon Bar-Jonah. Oh, I know who Jonah is, so I know what Simon's going to be like. You are not Plato or Aristotle or Epicurus or some other fancy name that the Greeks had that would go around teaching. You are not Socrates, someone who has a name for himself. You do not have power like the Roman Empire, centurions who can wave swords and shackles around, put you into prison or whatever else. No, the power of the gospel is Christ crucified. God offering himself on the cross for our salvation. It stumbles and befuddles the logic of the Jews who are unable to comprehend a God that would stoop to man and offer himself to suffer for the sake of his people. This is a God who is beyond us. I used to work for a Jewish boss and he and I would talk for hours about this kind of stuff. And he would say over and over again, no, 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 you, you've got it wrong. God does not interact with man this way. We are here, he is here, and neither the two shall meet. To a certain extent, he's got it right. God is God and we are creation. But because he misses everything from Genesis 3 through Isaiah, through every other prophecy that talks about Christ, and then stops before he gets to Matthew, he misses the gospel. And it befuddles the logic of the Greeks because... It's the very existence of the spiritual that interjects itself into the material. It's not this dichotomy. It's not this separation of spiritual above the material. It's God coming down to his people, becoming one of us, so that he pays the penalty for you and for me. To the Greeks, how could that which is spiritually pure infiltrate that which is 
materially impure. You see, it makes no sense to them. It's foolish for them to think that way. When Paul went to Athens, as it's told to us in Acts, Paul goes to the Areopagus and says, Look! And they go, Who is this babbler? Get him out of here. Paul, in his very plain way of saying, You even have an altar to an unknown God who created the heavens and the earth, and I proclaim to you that which is what you worship inadvertently. You worship a God that is known, a God that is known better than any other God. Not through myths and stories and legends, but a God who sent himself down to die on the cross for you and for me. So that those in this world may not be alone, but that we may be saved. Not through the power of man, not through the power or the heredity or anything else that one might boast about. But rather, he does so through that which is considered foolish. Because the Almighty God, verse 25, the foolishness of God is wiser than human wisdom. And the weakness of God is stronger than human strength. You see, when we talk about our God in the smallest possible sense, even the foolishness of God is greater than anything we can come up with. How many of us would say, okay, at the beginning of time, I have a sinful people. How in the world are they going to be redeemed? Well, maybe they got to work for it. There's a price that needs to be paid. That needs to be paid through them. And yet God in his mercy says, I will pay the cost. Through the seed of the woman, the seed of the serpent will be crushed. I will send my son down to die on the cross. And through that action the sin of the world will be extinguished. The penalty will be paid. The price is no longer on your heads and the heads of your children. To the third and the fourth generation, no, the love of God is shown to thousands of those. And we love him because he first loved us. You see, the power of God, the power of of the wisdom of those that are being saved is greater than the greatest answer that any man can give you nowadays. We have so many people that are devoted philosophers, physicists, even the weather guy from now and then would be more than happy to tell you how to live your life. The world's coming to the end in 2000. The world's coming to an end in 2015, in 2012, in in 2008. The world's going to end in 20 years. The world's going to end in 60 years. I still remember being a little boy listening to Harold Camping and how many times he predicted the world was going to end. I have this Bible code or that Bible code. The world's going to end because of global warming or the world's going to end because of nuclear war or the world's going to end because of this or because of that. And we wrap ourselves up in the anxiety of the world. And 
yet instead of the anxiety of the world, we can have peace because we have a God who even his foolishness is still more powerful than the power of man. The world's going to end because of global warming? Maybe it will, but it's going to do so by the power of the one who controls the wind and the waves. The world might end because of of nuclear war? Well, maybe, but it's going to be because of the one that, that the knees, that the principalities and powers bend the knee to, the King of kings and the Lord of lords. There may be a means that the world comes to an end, but it's going to be a means that our Lord and Savior has dictated to. And I have faith in him because he's told me that all things must work for the good of those who love him. You see, Paul here asks facetiously, where is the wise person, where is the teacher, where is the philosopher? Because those wise guys can't tell us what's going to happen with absolute certainty. The only one that can do that is the one who says Christ has been crucified and is coming again. Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. The origin of wisdom and the one who gives proper perspective. But where does this lead us? Well, verse 26, Paul says, it doesn't lead us back to ourselves. Brothers and sisters, think of what you were when you were called. Many of us were born into the faith. Many of us were converted later on. We hear stories about, I used to do this and I used to do that. I used to live this way or I used to live that way. And the rapidly transforming power of God. But we don't point to those people, do we? We don't point to the people and say, you, you were amazing. Yes, there are amazing things that happen. Stories of former Soviet generals and leaders. People who in communist China who were persecutors of Christians and have actually become Christians because of those who they have persecuted. Wonderful stories. And it's not to discount those, but we don't look at those people. And we don't look at the ones that they were even beating or the ones that they were massacring or the ones that they were even striving against and persecuting. We look at those people as a conduit to say, where does their power come from? Paul points it back on the Corinthians here and says, not many of you were wise by the human standards. You weren't philosophers. Not many of you were from noble birth. When the Romans took over here, They didn't elevate certain families and they instead transplanted Romans and soldiers and centurions and said, you're going to rule here. But God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. God chose the lowly things of this world, the despised things, And the things that are not. In fact, the Greek here says, he chooses the nothing ones. 
He chooses the ones that have no value. The ones who in the eyes of the world have nothing at all to even put to their name. And instead he chooses those people. Not because through them people will look and go, Oh, that's amazing, I want to follow them. No, he chooses those who are weak. Chooses those who are considered not wise, those who are considered foolish, those who are considered low birth, those who are poor, blind, naked, and wretched. Not because of their status, but because of the transforming power of the gospel. Because you realize that because those people are transformed, it's not the power of the person, it's the power of the God behind them. God chooses that which is nothing. So often we try to build ourselves up in this world. So often we try to make a name for ourselves, to have a right standing, to have a a good life, to have a name that is respected and revered. I'm not saying that that's necessarily a bad thing. What I am saying is that it's in the way of what God is and how God displays himself through you then maybe even that name is a problem. I know more and more people. It used to be a joke and it's becoming even more true. If you're not Dutch, you're not much. What happens when we get rid of the Dutch last name? Are you still saved? Are you still a Christian? What happens if we get rid of the family that you're from? What happens if we get rid of your social... What happens if you were to lose everything, like Job? Would you still praise the name of God, or would you curse God and die? There are more more than enough power and prosperity preachers in this world, but here Paul says it's not about the power, it's not about the prosperity, It's not about anything else but the cross of Christ and Him crucified. A stumbling block to Jews. Foolishness to the Gentiles. And you see here that we can do nothing but praise the Lord for what He has done. God nullifies that which we are to give us that which we could never be. We could never be righteous. We could never be holy. We could never be redeemed in our own power. There is no strength of man that could ever change our status in the eyes of God. And instead, what does he do? He gives us Christ. He gives us Christ on a cross. He gives us Christ on a cross and in a grave and now at the right hand of the Father. 
He gives us and chooses us not because of what we are, but to nullify the things that we are so that no one may boast before him. In the Hebrew translation here, it is alpanai. It's the same word that is used in the second commandment. You shall have no other gods before his face. We cannot boast before the face of God. We cannot preach anything else in the face of God because we have nothing to do but preach Christ and him crucified. It is he who has changed us, he who has become our righteousness, our holiness, and our redemption. And it leaves us with one thing. When we boast... We can only boast in the Lord. Our proper praise is instigated, not because of who we are, not because of the intelligence we've gained, not because of the way we can apply it. No, the reason we have praise to our God is because of what he's done for us, because of who he's made us, because we are his. We are the sheep of the shepherd, the flock under his care. You see, Paul here ends with, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. Because at the end of the day, when it comes down to anything and everything we look at in this world, we can't point back, we can't point forward, we can't even point to now unless we're doing it in Christ. We can't point to who we were except to say, look what God brought us from. We can't point ahead to say, look where we're going, except to say, look what God's going to do in my life. And we can't point to now except to say, look what God is doing and is showing and is growing me into. but we can only do so with a proper perspective. That perspective comes from the Holy Spirit, the very power of God that points us to the gospel and says, God has done so much for you. And it should be nothing short than everything that we have to say, it makes me wholehearted, willing, and ready to live for him. We can do nothing but boast in our God. Amen. Let's pray. Almighty God and Heavenly Father, we come before you. We have heard your word. And we can do nothing but praise you. May our boasting be in you. May we point not to what we have or what we can do, not where we've come from or where we're going, but Lord, may we point only to you in our lives. May we hold out the gospel, the word of life, so that you would be praised, so that you would be glorified. Lord, may our humble boasting be what brings 
those from the world into the fold, the flock under your care. May you do so through our meager means. This we ask in the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, who is crucified, Emmanuel, through the Holy Spirit. Amen.